Real estate. On the one hand, the phrase has an allure. It's land. You know, land's real. It's buildings, properties, estates. And in many ways, real estate is an investment choice and opportunity that more Americans naturally and intuitively understand, I would say, well more than the stock market. Many of us have mortgages, which are loans we took out to own a home. And we pay that off over time, confident that the value of our property, aided by inflation, will be more, well more, in time than what we paid to own it. And that makes us real estate investors. Oh, too, you could be a landlord or a real estate agent. I'm sorry, realtor. Anyway, the stuff of real estate is much more understandable to most of us listening right now than the stock market's wily ways. Oh, and let's not forget that another way to invest in real estate would be in stocks within that industry. REITs, many of them real estate investment trusts that pay outsized dividends. Looking for some investment income in your life? Real estate can be your friend. And yet, speaking only for myself, Real estate hasn't been much of a friend to me. I've never put up big numbers with real estate investments. I mean, I've loved my houses over the years, maybe one new one every decade, but the actual increase in value of these hard assets has been for me, well, paltry. Now, I hasten to add, I can live in my house. I've never been able to live in my stock, so I really love that about my houses. But no, my investing money has stayed pretty much 100% in common stocks. And Not only do I have no regrets about that, but it's evoked much joy and prosperity. So real estate hasn't really been my friend. We haven't got to know each other too well over the years, but I have friends. You get to know them every week on this podcast. And one of them for a long time now is Matthew Argusinger, investor, analyst, and advisor here at The Motley Fool. Several years ago, Matt made, to my mind, a radical shift from finding rule breakers to leading our fellow fools into largely uncharted territory for our company at the time, territory that you and I can call real estate. And now Matt's joining me for one special week in which we throw our Rule Breaker branded clipboards and Rule Breaker branded pens and Rule Breaker branded green eye shades and talk not stocks, but real estate. Let's learn only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder, David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Yep, it's time for real estate investing. And you know, a lot of people might look at it and go, well, are there rules that can be broken in the world of real estate? I would say that my friend and guest this week, Matthew Argusinger, kind of broke our own internal rules by even expressing interest in this topic. He has some real-life experiences to share But to take and open up Million Acres and have a bunch of services that increasingly we're investing in and building at The Motley Fool, well, we realized the relevance of this, but we needed somebody with a rule-breaker eye. And so I'm just delighted that Matt will be joining me very shortly. I do want to mention, this is kind of a sister podcast looking back over this year that's been thinking of other ways to invest. July 21st, Venture Adventure with Olin Douglas, Venture Capital. That was the focus with Olin a couple of months back. Google it if you didn't get a chance to listen to it. Venture Adventure was a lot of fun. Bitcoin 2021, earlier in this year, I had Jim Sirwicky, longtime financial journalist and a friend of mine, and Aaron Bush to talk it out. Bitcoin early in the year. And in January coming up, Aaron's going to return to talk about NFTs, which I'm looking forward to. So, of course, most of our focus on this podcast remains 
uncommon stocks. And by the way, Matt will be talking about those this week as well. But I, I kind of love that we're having little forays into other forms of very relevant, very interesting ways to invest your hard-earned dollars. So without any further ado then, Matt Argersinger, welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Thank you, David. It's great to be back. You know, Matt, you and I are definitely going to talk about real estate in its different forms with lots. I mean, there's a myriad of opportunities out there. It's a great big world out there, it turns out, Matt. But you were pointing out to me that just real estate stocks this year, not having a bad year. Not at all, David. I was looking at it. Uh, if you look at the as of market close uh, on Monday earlier this week, uh, you know the S and P is up. Uh, the S and P five hundred is the common index and benchmark we use at the Motley Fool. It's up twenty four percent year to date. So it's been a wonderful year by any measure for the stock market, and that's been it's been great for investors. But if you look at real estate, if you kind of look at the real estate sector of the market, and and I like to look at the Vanguard uh, real estate index because it's it's widely tracked and very popular index. It's actually up about 32% this wow. year. And I'm happy to say that a couple of the services I work on at The Molly Fool, uh, one of them being Real Estate Winners and one of them being Mogul, uh, we, where we also recommend real estate stocks and, and real estate investment trusts, our average recommendation this year is up 33%. So, Wonderful. So I'm feeling really good. I mean, it's, it's rare to get a year like that for real estate. Uh, you know, I often think, as, as I'm sure most investors do, real estate is sort of the, uh, the slow moving, you know, you're not going to get rich quick. It's a marathon type of investing asset class. Um, and, and so it's very rare to get even a double digit annual increase in mm. real estate. And here we are looking at 30 plus percent returns. Um, of course, coming off what was in 2020 a really bad year for real estate for a lot of reasons, but it's nice to see a real big bounce back in the sector this year. Thank you for pointing that out, Matt. And I would like to mention that Rule Breaker stocks this year, there's no index the Vanguard tracks, but at least a bunch of the ones that I'm invested in and have been for many years in the Rule Breaker service, I think we're kind of probably underperforming. At least my personal portfolio is underperforming the S&P this year. So I think real estate might be doubling up on me this year, which is not going to be true every year. Anyway, I'm delighted to know that. And I'm not surprised that your services, Matt, and I, I hope you'll plug them once or twice during our conversation because we're very proud of what you're working on. But I'm not surprised to hear that they themselves are beating the market averages, because that's been a big focus for you and for me over the years. Well, there are a lot of directions we're going to go in our time together this week, Matt, but I thought we should start with your story. Uh, were you raised in a family that were real estate investors? What was your first real estate investment? Maybe it was a stock or maybe it was a property. I know you've been playing the role of landlord a little bit in and around the greater DC area. Could you just give us Matt Argusinger the making of a real estate investor, maybe five minutes or less? Sure, sure. Well, I, uh, you know, so I let's see. I joined the Motley Fool in 2008 and was very lucky to, uh, you know, uh, get to work with you on Stock Advisor and eventually Rule Breakers and and stock investing was always, you know, the game I wanted to be playing and I was so happy and grateful to have that opportunity to work with you and and come to the Motley Fool. But so. Real estate was was probably a side hustle at best, um, you know. My and it wasn't really. I never looked at it as really an investment that I that I wanted to be make a big part of my life. But it just so happens that shortly after my wife and I got married in uh, 2009, we were living in D.C. in the Capitol Hill neighborhood of D.C. And we thought, well, we love this neighborhood. We know we're going to be here for at least a few more years. My my wife was working at the Navy Yard downtown, and um, you know I had just started at the Motley Fool the year before, and so we thought, you know, maybe it's it's worth seeing. What if there are any houses that you know, or any real estate that we want to buy to live in instead of you know renting our apartment, which we've been doing, and it, it came at a you know an interesting time in the real estate market because this was two thousand nine, so this was after the 
you know, the, the, the crash and the, the, the bursting of the real estate bubbles, mm. so to speak. And so I remember we, we would go to a few open houses back in 2007, you know, and, and, you know, it would just be a rush of people at all these, these houses. Right. But in 2009, you go, to, you would go to an open house and my wife and I would be the only ones there on, on occasion. And so we kind of had our pick and wow. we found a, uh, we were lucky to find a, a row house in DC and, and David, you know, this being a DC native, a lot of the row houses, especially in Capitol Hill and, and DuPont and those places, they're kind of, they're, you know, they're very narrow uh, and there's a main house on the top and then a, usually a basement apartment on the bottom. And so we found a house that was, had one of those setups where we could live upstairs and rent out the basement apartment mm. and help pay, you know, roughly what we thought would be like a third or maybe a half of our mortgage. And so it seemed like a really great opportunity. And that's what we did. We made an offer. We, we got a house. And um, shortly after we moved in, we were thinking about how to rent the you know, the basement apartment and who we should rent it to. And my wife just happened to read this article. I'll never forget. I think it was in the New York Times about this new up and coming company called Airbed and Breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, we know today is Airbnb. Uh, But then back then, you know, there were maybe three, I want to say three or four listings for Airbnb in all of Capitol Hill and DC. And so we thought, well, that's interesting. You know, the house we bought was right near Union Station, which is the big train station downtown. Uh, There'd be, you know, a lot of visitors coming to DC. So we thought, you know, let's try this Airbnb thing out. Uh, that way we don't have to rent out, you know, we don't have to sign a long term term lease with a tenant. We can just, you know, rent it on, you know, kind of a short term basis. And it was so successful. I think we, we listed it on Airbnb and within a month, I think we had booked out all of 2010. <laughs> I mean, wow. roughly 25 days of every month. And we probably priced it too low. That was probably a reason for that. <laughs> but we just had so much success with that. And it really opened our eyes to the opportunity. And we, and we were essentially paying our mortgage by Airbnb being the, uh, the apartment because you, the rates you get with Airbnb are, are much higher. Of course, there's a lot more, t- more work involved. You're, you're sort of changing out, you know, guests come in for a few days, they leave, you yeah. have to turn over the apartment. So there's a lot more work, but it opened our eyes. And so we did, we, uh, two years later, we, we bought another property, very similar, which had a, uh, you know, kind of a main unit and then um, a rental unit attached to it. And that just became sort of our way of, of sort of building wealth in, in real estate. And later on, I was fortunate enough to, I, I partnered with uh, a friend of mine and we made some commercial real estate investments as well. And uh, today, my wife and I have several, uh, we still have some properties in DC. We have uh, commercial real estate investments that we've made. And uh, it was just delightful a few years ago when I sat down with uh, Austin Smith and a few fools here. And we said, you know, this real estate, the game of real estate has changed. And I know we're going to talk about that in a moment, but it's really changed to the point where the individual investor, the foolish investor can really get involved in the asset class like never before. And so we, we ended up launching Million Acres. And of course, we launched uh, several services, two of which I'm an advisor on. And uh, it's just been awesome to really explore this asset class in, in a way that we think can be very foolish, You know, really fo- uh, focusing on the principles of, of long-term investing in the asset class, which wasn't really possible with real estate up until mm. recently. So that's that's a little bit of the story to, to where I, I am as a real estate investor. Wonderful. And speaking of earlier podcasts in 2021, Matt told his story. The date was April 14th. You were on with Jason Moser. That was a delight, Telling Their Stories, Volume 2. So Matt, I was asking you to give short shrift to your own life story, but we, we really went in, into it more at length uh, on April 14th. So I highly recommend that to any fool who enjoys this week's podcast. You'll get to know Matt a lot better through that podcast. But sticking to our knitting here, Matt, you've done a nice job kind of breaking down this week's conversation into three main chunks. I'm just going to throw them out 
up front, and then let's get started. The first, well, you've entitled it, How the Rules for Real Estate Investing Have Changed. Of course, you added, in parentheses, been broken over the past decade. And so the democratization of this asset class and the opportunities that are out there for everybody listening, that's exciting. That's that's going to be the first section. The second, you've entitled Three Undeniable Long-Term Trends and One Major Uncertainty for Real Estate Ahead. And then the third and probably the most unfortunate of the three sections, the, the one that I might encourage people just to skip altogether if they feel like it just went too long this week, you're going to be quizzing me on real estate multibaggers. I will show my lack of knowledge of this entire asset class and this whole industry within stock market terms. You'll be asking me about some of the, the tickers, which I won't recognize and how they've done, and I'll undershoot, and you will make some great points. So that's that's ahead, but let's stay focused. I can't wait for that, by the way. I really, I, I'm so looking forward to that. <laughs> I'm dreading it, Matt. Thank you, though, for bringing the preparation that you have. Okay, let's get started. So the rules of real estate investing have changed, have been broken over the past decade. What's an example that comes quickly to mind for you, Matt? Well, I, I think if you, the example I can think of is if you go back just 15 years ago, not not very long ago, the idea of being able to invest in a institutional quality piece of real estate or development. So I'm thinking something, imagine a large scale building, a large scale office building in New York City, a uh, maybe a, a hotel development in Los Angeles, you know, something that's a hundred million, two hundred million dollar plus capitalization. Yeah, most of us don't have that kind of change. No. I mean and you know and yeah. And never will. And so the idea of that is just how could you even do that? It's 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 not even possible. There is a just to throw an example out there. There is a new platform out there called Lex, which I just learned about and I and had a meeting with. Uh, and literally, they're letting you buy pieces of equity in New York City skyscrapers. Mm. And you're thinking to yourself, well, how how does that even work? You know, and but they're doing it, and it's it's possible. And so, and that's just one small example. But really, this all started back in 2012. The the passage of the Jobs Act. Uh, Jumpstart Our Business Startup Act, um, which came out. And what that did was, for the first time, it enabled certain classes of investors, mostly accredited investors, but also non-accredited investors, to invest in privately listed securities or or crowdfunded equity raises. And that really opened the door for investors of all kinds, really, to get involved in in private equity, but also in real estate. Because Unlike most asset classes, most most real estate is held in private hands, and it's and the money for it, and it's managed privately. It's it's raised for privately, and so that asset class just remains so far out of reach until really 2012, and so less than mm. a decade. You know what I'm thinking about, Matt? Is I'm thinking about how for the stock market things have been democratized in recent years by the ability to buy fractional shares, which certainly Robinhood, but a number most brokerage firms are headed there if they're not already in the next year or two. So buying pieces of things, buying one part of one Amazon share, buying a tiny part of a New York City condominium, pieces of things. That's exactly right. It's 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 just pieces of equity that we can get you know, we can allow our portfolio to get exposure to um, that we otherwise wouldn't be able to. And so since really 2012 you've had uh, the spawning of so many um, Crowdfunding platforms um, like CrowdStreet, uh, Realty Mogul is another one, uh, RealCrowd, and they're. If you go to those platforms, essentially every month they're coming out with new uh, private real estate opportunities that you can invest in, and 
it's you know really and, and it's amazing that you can sit down really in front of your computer like like a like having a Robinhood account you can have an account at a CrowdStreet or elsewhere and you know with a few clicks of your button you can you can you know invest in a apartment building in Seattle <laughs> if you mm. live on the East Coast or you can invest in a hotel in Miami you know no matter where you live and it's now I haven't uh, done this myself Matt but I know that a significant part of, as you launched Million Acres a few years ago and, and the mogul offering that Million Acres has. Million Acres, a sister company of The Motley Fool. Matt, I, I, in particular, I think CrowdStreet was a platform that you were focusing on at the time. It may have been, It's probably an early leader. I know it's still early days for this whole industry, but I'm hearing you mention a number of other names now these days. But I've still never done that myself. So, And, and some of our listeners are really into this, but many of us haven't visited one of those platforms yet. So could you just briefly describe, it, does it look like an Amazon page, but instead of buying, I don't know, new light bulbs, because I'm always <laughs> running out of light bulbs, thank God for LED making it so I don't have to change so many light bulbs anymore. But anyway, is it just kind of like looking down a product page and going, oh, yeah, I, I can buy a piece of that? Yeah, it, it is. I mean, it's it, most of the sites are very simple to use. Uh, you can go and they have their uh, their marketplace or their market. And you can click on that and you'll see, you know, a number of opportunities just sort of across your page, you know, wow, okay, so here's this, uh, here's a, a retail, you know, complex in, in Florida, here is a, a hotel in Salt Lake City, here's an office building in Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, click on it, and it'll kind of describe to you, okay, what are you investing in? What's the what's the business strategy here? What's the development team behind the deal? And it, 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 it what I love about it is it allows you it allows us, uh, the Motley Fool, it, Foolish Investors, to really analyze the deal and look at the fundamentals of the deal, the marketplace, the uh, the sponsor or the developer. They, in real estate's lingo, it's called the sponsor. But you know, what's their pedigree and track record? Uh, mm. Really, things like that that helps us build a case for for recommending these deals to investors. And it really reminds me. I keep thinking about a good. You know, you you brought up Robinhood and, and sort of fractional shares, but I would even go back farther and say this feels like that moment. In the early '90s, when you had the rise of the internet, and not only the rise of the internet, but the rise of the the online online discount broker, mm. and the ability to you know not get on the phone and spend fifty dollars or a hundred dollars on a commission <laughs> to buy a stock, right? I mean, you're you're on you're logging into an account that you created. You're spending maybe at the at that time still thirty or forty dollars to buy a stock, but it was a lot cheaper and faster than it was. And now, of course, nowadays we have free trading uh, and fractional trading, and it's 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 almost gamified. It's it's amazing, and I feel like real estate is sort of having that early 90s moment. That's a great comparison. You know, a lot of us um, don't quite know enough to feel confident that we might want to put our thousands of dollars into that office building versus that other office building across town, that same city or a totally different coast. But I know part of what you've done is you've developed a rating system. And so part of what Mogul has done is it provides for Mogul members kind of a numerical system that helps them sort through. And of course, you're recommending the ones that you really like that kind of fit with the framework that you're operating off of. So in a lot of ways, I think the Motley Fool back in those 90s that you just referred to, we were green lighting the idea that yeah, people should buy companies and invest patiently and do it differently from Wall Street. A lot of people needed to be nudged to believing that they could, even if they weren't finance majors, I wasn't either. But I think you needed the advisor, you needed advice to, to really embolden you to think that you could invest your money there and do that. And Matt, that's what Mogul's doing. That's right. And thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, we have a score from zero to 100. And so every deal that we recommend in, in Mogul, we rate from zero to 100. And generally, every deal we recommend is going to have a score of at least 75. But really what we're looking at is, what is the risk reward for the investor? And the higher the score, we think the better 
the better the reward is for the risk taken on any given deal. And Give so an example. Think, sure. Well, let's see. We we recently we recently rated a deal that I'm really excited about. It it got a kind of a below average score, so maybe it's not the greatest example in the world, but it scored an 81, and it was a a hotel redevelopment in Salt Lake City, where uh, if I wasn't very familiar with Salt Lake City until, and I've actually never been there until I uh, until I researched this this idea, but. There's this, uh, the Union Station, which is the old train depot in downtown Salt Lake City. Um, this uh, developer is going to go in there and redevelop it as a five-star hotel. Uh, they're going to build a, you know, more flooring in the back, but um, they're going to kind of re- redo the entire depot itself. And it's, it's, it's right across the street from where the Utah Jazz uh, play. Hmm. And what's fascinating about Salt Lake City, I didn't know this either, is that there really hasn't been a full-service hotel, new, new full-service hotel in downtown Salt Lake City built in the last 20 years. And the idea that you're going to be able to, you know, rent a hotel space um, at this uh, or a conference room at this really beautiful, iconic building right in downtown Salt Lake City in mm. a few years, once the redevelopment's done, sounds really appealing was, and looked really compelling to me. And, uh, you know, there was risks involved and, and, and we, we are talking about hospitality and we're talking about a redevelopment. So th- there are risks. And so the score probably wasn't as high as it, it could have been, but still a very compelling idea, especially if we think, you know, of course, in a, in a post-COVID world, we're traveling again. We're, tr- we're going to places like Salt Lake City to go, yeah. you know, to go skiing or to, for other reasons. And it just seemed like a great opportunity. So that's an example of one deal that we recommended recently. And I think it's I'm pretty sure it scored 81, 81 out of 100 in that case. That's, that's a great example, Matt. And I have been to Salt Lake City because it's not too far from Park City. And there's some great skiing in and around oh, yeah. that area. And, and I guess this occasions then three immediate questions that I have for you, because I think a lot of us, especially those hearing about this kind of investing for the first time, are going to wonder any one of the three following things. So Matt, how much money do I have? How much money am I probably putting toward that investment? What is my minimum investment that you would recommend for somebody who would participate in that particular mogul recommendation or any of the others? The second is, do I have to be accredited or not accredited? Explain a little bit of that. It it is a United States distinction. It may not make as much sense for our international listeners, um, but at least if they're trying to invest within the US, they probably need to be accredited in some cases. So my three questions, number one, how much money do I need to devote to this? Number two, do I need to be approved by some regulatory body to participate? And third, how active would I need to be? Do I need to have a portfolio? Like I, we always recommend 25 stocks of The Motley Fool. Do I need to have 25 of these different investments? And do I have enough money to invest in that way? All great questions. Well, I'll start with the minimum investment is usually an easy one because it's usually dictated by the deal terms. And so normally with the deals we're recommending, uh, these private uh, commercial real estate deals, the minimum investment is $25,000 on most crowdfunding sites. So that's where you need to start. Now, of course, you can invest much more than that if you like, but $25,000 is usually the start. the second question is, yeah, that's a key one. So most of the deals that, that are, exist in the private real estate world still require the investor to be an accredited investor. And in the US, what that means is that the investor needs to have a net worth of at least $1 million or an annual income of at least $200,000 or $300,000 annually if investing as a married couple. And so there, the, those requirements might seem stringent. The nice thing is they haven't really been changed for decades. And so more investors have sort of joined that, you know, that sort of that class or that distinction of investors. And the other news, good news is that there are other platforms out there. Uh, Fundrise is an example of one. Lex is another one, the one I mentioned earlier, where mm-hmm. 
they're focused on on coming out with Reg A offering deals, which do, do enable uh, non-accredited investors to invest as well. Uh, so the opportunity set might still seem limited to a certain class of investors, but that that is is opening up every day. And then the third question, yeah. So if you're investing twenty five thousand or more a pop, it's it can be difficult to amass a portfolio of you know fifteen, twenty, twenty five. Um, you know, investments as we, we can do pretty easily in the stock market. Uh, what, what I tend to do is, is I say, try to have um, at least five to 10 okay. and, and have a cross-section, a diversification across both categories. So don't just have five retail investments or five office investments. You know, try to have maybe one retail, one office, one industrial, uh, uh, one hospitality, I'm probably forgetting it, you know, one self-storage maybe. So diversify across that and then diversify across across market as well. So I mentioned Salt Lake City. Well, great. You have an investment in Salt Lake City, but maybe look to also have an investment in uh, maybe California somewhere, maybe one in Texas, maybe one in Florida, maybe one on the East Coast to give yourself a little geographic diversification. And so if you do that, I think, you know, having have five or 10 of these private investments staggered over time in different places and across different uh, property categories, I feel like you're pretty diversified. And I kind of love how it has you poking your head up and looking and seeing what's going on around the world, not just in your own back doors, although I assume you probably feel like you've got a little bit better inside baseball knowledge if you're looking at a property in the greater Washington, D.C. area where you're based and where the Motley Fool headquarters is based than, let's say, Salt Lake City. But that has never discouraged me from buying some stocks outside of industries that I'm focused in myself. I love learning more about the world. It feels like you're getting some specialized knowledge about what's happening in and around some of the American cities. You start cheering on this random hotel in Cincinnati because you're invested <laughs> in it because it, it had a good mogul rating. That's absolutely right. I mean, I'm happy to say we've made, you know, we've made five, I believe, five investments in the D.C. area. I, I want to say that's probably our most popular market that we've invested in because, yeah, I feel like I know it uh, best, of course. But um, but yeah, we've made we've made investments. We've made forty plus now, maybe forty two wow. private real estate investments, and they're really all over the country. Another question I have to ask you then, on behalf of everybody listening, how long does this baby take to pay off? What what can I expect for my twenty five k? What might it grow into by what date? Typically, I realize there's no real average here, but right. Well, the the deal range is that's that's a really. I'm glad you brought it up because it's a key consideration. I'd say the minimum hold period tends to be three years. Uh, and then some some deals can range out for five, seven, even ten years, and so you have to be ready to keep money invested. It, it is very much like venture investing. In other words, your money is in, and you really can't get that money out until the deal, you know, either is sold um, or the deal. Maybe it's a cash flowing deal where it's paying you out distributions, very much like dividends in a stock, and that, that's hmm. that's pretty typical. Um, I am very happy to say that we had a deal. This is remarkable. We had a deal that we invested in in February this year in Las Vegas. And it was a, an apartment building just a, about a, two miles from the Strip. Um, it, it, had been, it had been under a little bit of duress given COVID. So the, the occupancy was, was lower than normal. The rent collections were, were suffering a little bit. And so we took a little bit of a, of, a, of a risky bet there on kind of a bounce back in Vegas. And the all-in cost basis for the developer who bought the uh, community that we, we partnered with was $70 million dollars. Well, that property went under contract about a month ago for 110 million. Mm. Um, really, not having the developer had not done anything to really improve the property as as they had planned, and they had, the the whole period planned for that property was five years. So we went into the investment thinking it was going to be a five year hold, but our investors were able to get an 80 percent return 
in about seven months out of the wow. deal. Um, now that is unusual, mm-hmm. but you can certainly get some really big and, and early wins sometimes with some of these deals. All right. Well, as we come to the end of the first section of our three sections of discussion this week, Matt, your final bullet for this, you, you sent in great preparation ahead of time, making me uh, really lazy as your interviewer because I know where we're headed because you set me up. But your final bullet says the world's biggest asset class is more accessible than ever. That feels like a pretty good takeaway from this portion of our conversation. Rules are being broken. Asset classes are being democratized. Technology is enabling this. And it's good news for all of us who are interested in the many ways that we can invest today that really were closed to us a decade or three ago. That's right. I mean, if real estate by most measures is about three times the size of the stock market. Um, and that, that's, that's obviously huge. I mean, we're talking trillions and trillions of dollars, but it has been that asset class more than any other major asset class where I feel like it's, it's been out of reach for the individual investor. And I, I just think um, over the last 10 years, less than 10 years, really, it's just been, it's been broken wide open. And every day I see new innovations around it. We talked about the crowdfunding uh, aspect of it. And, but even, you know, even earlier, you, know, I, you, were, you were kind of talking about uh, Aaron Bush, who I love, uh, a former co- well, colleague of mine, but a former uh, co-advisor of mine at The Motley Fool. You know, he, he's in, looking at crypto and NFTs. Well, there's this whole now virtual real estate, NFTs, metaverse you know, uh, <laughs> real estate uh, world going on, right? It's, that's being built out too. And, I, um, and that's, that's really interesting and fascinating. So I just feel like there's so many more ways. There's so many ways now for the investor to get involved, and uh, I, I love it because real estate has a great track record. It is, I think, it can serve a really important part of a you know an investor's portfolio. I know you're 100% stocks, David, but um, I think there are some investors who might find some value in having, say, you know, 15, 20% of their portfolio in real estate. And and as you pointed out, most of us do have exposure to real estate because we. Um, we own our home, and uh, you know that's that's a real part of our net worth as well. I want to ask you one more question about Mogul. In fact, I think some people are probably listening, going, "Hey, what is that service?" I'd like to hear a little bit more about it. So, please give it a little plug in a sec. But Matt, uh, one big picture question for you: um, How big is the residential real estate market versus commercial real estate, roughly ballpark? You just gave us a great sense that the stock market is maybe a third the asset class size. Of real estate, I've always been curious, like residential versus commercial, and and I guess I'll also just throw in: Could you have imagined ten years ago or so when you let your first guest into your English basement that these crowdfunding platforms would be enabling you to do and say what you're doing here ten years later? Well, um, so the first part of the question, where the size of the of the residential market, the one confusing aspect is whether or not you include multifamily in the residential uh. pie or in the commercial pie. If you include it in the residential pie where it traditionally has been included, um, it's 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 easily a nine, I think a nine trillion dollar market. If I if my numbers in my head are correct, so it is bigger than the commercial market. If you you if you do that, if, okay. you, if you instead Thank include you. the multifamily part in commercial, which people are tending to do, then okay. you you come a little they're a little more equivalent because now you're you're comparing, you know, sort of the single family housing uh, home market essentially to the commercial market, which also now includes apartment buildings, et cetera. So, but uh, either way you slice it, we're talking big, we're talking big markets. And no, no, I welcome. You know, when we welcomed our first Airbnb guest uh, into our apartment, gosh, eleven years ago now, <laughs> more than eleven years ago, um, I never, I never dreamed that 
you know, you'd have this this whole crowdfunding universe rise up to the point where it was so easy to rent or, or sort of to invest in 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 asset class in, in the asset class so easily and efficiently. And and even speaking to that sort of early Airbnb experience, you know, there are now uh, Airbnb operators out there that you can actually invest in, and their whole uh, their whole business plan is essentially just operate portfolios of Airbnb's rentals in a lot of different markets. Mm. But uh, but anyway, that's going down a different rabbit hole. But if, if you're interested in learning anything, you know more about this. Um, if you're interested in, in seeing how we do things in our in our mogul service, um, you can just go to millionacres.com and click on the invest button in the in the top tab there, um, and that'll that'll kind of give you some information about mogul the service that oh, that great. I'm on, and you know it's just. I don't. I don't know if we're accepting new investors now, nowadays. I should know that, but I think if you want to join Mogul, you're always, of course, welcome to join Mogul and uh, click on that, and that'll give you all the information you need about it. But it's uh, it's it in a way. I think we're doing our small part to de- democratize real estate for the individual investor. That's wonderful. And Matt, if I'm an international listener, uh, is this a U.S. only thing, or or could I participate? Well, that that is a little more complicated because I think most of the deals that we we recommend are only available to U.S. investors. Um, that is now that's going to change um, because there's some more regulations and I think some more language that uh, some of the sponsors are waiting for to determine whether or not they can let uh, international you know investors in. But right now, most developers only allow uh, U.S. investors to participate just because they're just they're worried about some legal implications of, of allowing international investors in. So that is a little bit more restrictive. But again, it's one of those things where I expect very shortly within a year or two, that's going to be, that's going to be, that rule is going to be broken as well. Well, we are here early days and you, you brought us here, Matt, and thank you for that. You know, when you were first explaining this service and the way you were thinking of it working, I was kind of likening it to eBay. Now we're not providing the platform of eBay, but imagine if you had an advisor looking at eBay saying, you know, you should go buy those collectibles over there that has a high rating, that'll be much more likely to pay off for you than those other things on eBay. That's basically what you're doing uh, using crowdfunding platforms. So it's a really cool approach, and I obviously am a fan. Let's go on to section number two of the conversation. You've entitled it, Three Undeniable Long-Term Trends, One Major Uncertainty for Real Estate Ahead. Let's start with trend number one. Sure. Well, this one is probably going to seem obvious, but not necessarily the implications. But e-commerce is a major trend. Undeniable, right? We've and we've been watching its growth and uh, and its exponential uh, reach across the country for you know decades now. But what happened, I guess, in the pandemic, and we're still kind of going through that, is you had really about five years worth of expected e-commerce growth get pulled forward because all of a sudden, as of you know March 2020, a lot of us are sitting at home. Uh, we're not going to grocery stores. We're not going out to do our normal shopping. We're not even going out to restaurants. And so it created, you know, it just really expanded the the business of e-commerce more than we could ever have expected in such mm. a short period of time. What that's done, though, is created a real dire need for more industrial and warehouse space in, in the United States because we just don't have the capacity Right now, and you're sort of seeing that kind of cascade across the the economy, which is we don't have the capacity to do all the shipping, logistics, warehousing, cold storage, all the things that you need to have in place to be able to really facilitate this this massive amount of e-commerce that's happening in the country. There was a stat that uh, CBRE put out earlier this year that still blows my mind, but that we're going to need we need 400 million more square feet of industrial warehouses just to handle returns. 
So just to handle people who buy things online but want to return them, we just don't have enough capacity. So, I mean, that it's a staggering number. And so, what and what you're seeing is the the demand and the value of industrial real estate uh, in the United States, particularly warehouse and and logistical where. Um, Real estate just soar in value, uh, and some of the the numbers are just staggering. There's there's billions of dollars worth of deals getting done, and some of the valuations in that marketplace that we're we're seeing are, are valuations I never thought you'd see on a per square foot basis for for uh, you know essentially what is very drab industrial warehouse space, right? You never thought you'd pay a lot of money for something like that on a per square foot basis, but that has become so valuable, especially when that real estate is located. You know, in, in in close infill locations where you know last the whole the quote last mile uh, location near big cities, mm. and so that is uh, think of, if you think about places like Dallas, Texas, or Tampa, Florida, or uh, what's in a good uh, Nashville, Tennessee, places where there's just a ton of growth going on, they don't have much industrial warehouse space. Um, they need a lot more. And I, I did, I heard that firsthand. In fact, this week on Motley Fool Live, we had the CEO of one of our companies we've invested venture capital in through Motley Fool Ventures. I was mentioning Olin Douglas earlier. His name is Cameron Johnson. And his company is Nixon. Really interesting company. They operate only in Dallas, Houston, and one other Texas city, only in Texas. And they do furniture as a service. Sounds kind of crazy until you realize it's totally logical. For anybody moving into a new apartment, especially if, let's say, you've taken a new job in a new city and you need to start there next month and you're moving your family there, they fully outfit your apartment for you before you get there. But what was so important and has been so important for them was this idea of warehouse space where they can keep all of their furniture. And as you just mentioned, that has been a dear commodity. You even happen to mention Dallas. But you know, I think a lot of Americans expect, well, you have so much room still not built up in this country. And you know, we love our national parks, so we're not trying to build everything up across this country. But wow, what an interesting, undeniable, I agree. Uh, you were calling this a long-term trend, though, not just uh, not just a one- or two-year COVID thing. It reminds me, Matt, that part of the coverage, and again, I'm always like a full arm's length away from what's happening in the world of real estate. I really don't follow it very much, but I'm constantly hearing that we didn't build for 10 years that we, it'll take us five to 10 years to build ourselves out of this predicament. I'm thinking in particular of residential real estate. Is that connected in here? I, I Absolutely. Well, I, I think you had, you know, not only did 10 years ago, you had a, you know, a, a down economy, but we were just not building enough real estate of all kinds, really. Or we had too much of certain kinds of real estate, like retail. And mm-hmm. if you think about shopping malls and things like that, that you know, maybe served a really good purpose 15, 20 years ago, but but that space, and we'll talk about the next trend because that, that's related to that, but that space is much better used now f- as sort of e-commerce hubs where we can, yeah, store things like furniture and mm. move things around um, and, and be able to have trucks come in and out or, or even trains where uh, that, that just wasn't something we were really focused on. And I think, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the outcomes of COVID, there are many outcomes, but one of them is that we just need this we need more space like this. And I think there's years to play out. Um, and there's investments that you can make behind this. And we're going to talk about a couple of them in the quiz that I'm going to give you. Uh-oh. And you can, But you can see some of the performance uh, that some of these industrial REITs have had. It's, it's really impressive. That's awesome. Let's move on to undeniable long-term trend number two. Right. So we just talked about e-commerce. But the flip side of that is what is happening to traditional retail? So I just talked about what happens to shopping malls or traditional malls or strip malls, uh, all this real, you know, retail real estate that we have where people are just going 
going to less um, and and decided to do more of their sort of typical household or and grocery shopping online. Yep. Well, I think there's a real trend now, and you're seeing it. You're seeing it happen kind of nascently, but I think it's something that's really going to take off in the years ahead, which is taking this real estate, this this you know millions and billions of square feet of of shopping malls and parking lots, and turning them into experience-based, entertainment-based, or mixed-use real estate Love that it. can do a lot of different things. I mean, you know, it, there's there's popular examples of, you know, uh, a mall being turned into a, you know, an esports arena. And that's that's happening more often than you think. But you're also seeing Amazon, for example, going out and buying uh, old shopping malls, either turning them into warehouse space or data centers. Uh, you're seeing big former real estate uh, shopping malls being turned into uh, apartment buildings and senior living and and hospitals. And so I think there's just this huge transformation uh, that's going to take place. And in the United States, we just have so much retail real estate, multiple times what you'd find in in you know your typical European country. And we just don't need a lot of it right now, at least in its current form. And so I think a big trend in the years to come, and it's going to last a long time, which is taking all this real estate and really transforming it into things we really need more of, uh, and we'd like to use more of, which is you know for experiences, for entertainment, for uh, services, uh, things that we need uh, for for where people to live, because we also need that as well. Yeah, and speaking of big trends that are undeniable, uh, that office desk that a lot of us reported to two years ago is now your home office desk, and so <laughs> you're right. We're not getting out as much, and there isn't as much need necessarily for us to get out, although some of us are a little stir-crazy. I'm trying to get out more because I enjoy getting out and around and seeing the beautiful mixed-use spaces that are sprouting up in and around Washington, D.C. area, which has a very vital real estate market. So you know, I, I want to start asking you about the future of work that's on so many people's minds right now, but looking ahead, spoiler alert, that's the big uncertainty ahead we're going to be talking about in a few minutes. So Let's park it for now, move away from our home office desk that might be our office desk for the rest of our lives or not. We'll get back to that, Matt. And let's go to undeniable long-term trend number three. Sure. Well, number three is this, what you have is this big migration going on. Um, and we've had, in our country, we have, we've had several sort of major migrations that have happened um, in history. But Go this west, one, young man. Go west, young man, or, or go even go go north to the Midwest and, you know, go work at Ford in the, you know, in the, in the teens and twenties yep. of the last century. But what you have today is a massive migration to the Sun Belt, um, mm-hmm. kind of away from the more traditional Northeast uh, or Midwest markets, and even away from the coast to a certain extent, and really down to a lot of those big Sun Belt cities that are just experiencing so much growth. Uh, think of, you know, we mentioned Dallas earlier, think of Austin, Texas as well, um, Phoenix, Arizona, uh, I, I mentioned Nashville, Tennessee, which is sort of on the northern sure. edge of the Sun Belt, but I consider it in the, in the Sun Belt. Atlanta, Georgia is another one. Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, Miami, Florida, Tampa, and those those cities are experiencing, or those markets are experiencing, about three times the the population growth as uh, the rest of the country. And it's it's really all people moving to those places. Now they're moving for a variety of reasons. Uh, COVID partly has made uh, you know worker distribution a little more well, distributed <laughs> and so uh, more flexible. So a lot of people are kind of going to those areas because they're, they're cheaper places to live and they're kind of up and coming. But there's also just lower costs in general. And you're seeing businesses really take move down and take advantage of, of lower taxes and lower labor costs and, and really 
good talent, uh, good employment, employee talent as well. So, you know, you're, you're every day, well, the, you know, the Tesla, of, Teslas of the world are moving to Austin, Texas, or big financial firms that made their homes in New York City for decades are now moving to places like Miami or Fort Lauderdale. Uh, and that's a real thing. You, if you look at the employment numbers and the population numbers, there's a real surge uh, in the in the country's population to those places. Yeah, and I mean that was happening well before COVID. I mean that move to the to the Southwest, the Sun Belt, as you're saying, was happening, but it's been accelerated. COVID has accelerated a lot of trends that were already in place. But man, we're running out of warehouse space. I hope we're not running out of Sunbelt, Matt. But I mean, it, it, so, so it's a classic example of something that was already happening. People moving away from, you're, you're a New Englander. I know you're a New England Patriots fan. I mean, oh, yeah. I, the Patriots, uh, are, are, are fans going to go to the games anymore? Or is it all about the Arizona Cardinals of the next year? I'm not sure. If everybody <laughs> moves away from these Eastern hubs or the, the West Coast, maybe it is all about the Arizona Cardinals. I know we're talking football here, but... I just think it's interesting that a lot of the things that have happened the last two years were already in place. They're just happening faster. Yes. And you can see it. One, one thing I love to look at is you can look at U-Haul data. So someone rents a U-Haul truck in mm. San Francisco, drives that down to Phoenix, Arizona, or, uh, or Salt Lake City, and you can see those. Then U-Haul puts that data out there. And you can just see the sort of net miles that are being traveled to the Sun Belt versus going back, you know, and so people are moving uh, to these places in droves. And, and you're exactly right. It just really picked up um, after COVID. And it's, again, it's one of those things where I just see playing out over many years. And what, what's the, what are the implications of that? Well, we need more housing. <laughs> we need more industrial space. We need, we might even need more office space uh, or at least co-working places if people are going to move to them, these places and, and want to, you know, have places where they can meet colleagues uh, or do shared work uh, projects. And so, Lots of impl- hotels. So there's just lots of real estate implications to that as well. I, I like to say in, uh, in a lot of things we do in Million Acres, it's, it's real estate follows people and money. And the mm. people and money are definitely heading to the Sun Belt. And so real estate is going to follow and try to keep up with it. All right. And all of that, Matt, takes us back to the future of work and the one major uncertainty for real estate ahead. Yes. So the big uncertainty, and I think it, there's there's no doubt, it's it's the traditional office building, because I can see what's happening in the residential space. I can see what's happening in industrial. We talked about it. I can even see what's happening in the hospitality space. I think hospitality real estate is really going to bounce back, probably beginning in 2022 for sure. Where I can't see through the clouds. And I think many investors and economists are struggling too as well is what happens to office because we have billions of square feet of office space uh, around the country. Think about all those office buildings in New York City or Chicago or Los Angeles or other San Francisco, other big cities, right? Where for years, decades, you know, you'd have millions of workers getting up every morning getting in a car or getting on a, some kind of bus or train and going into a city and going to one of these mega, you know, mega buildings and going to work. And that was the way we did things for forever. In, in The Motley Fool, we have offices all around the, all around the world uh, and our headquarters is in Alexandria, Virginia. And for uh, almost 10 years, I, living in D.C., I got on the metro, the subway in D.C. and you know, rode 20 minutes down to uh, Alexandria to go to Motley Fool HQ. What what happens, you know, to that that relationship that we had as workers, employees, with the uh, the office building? And I think that's going to change. I think the space that we need to do work, or the spaces that we want to be in with colleagues, is going to change. Uh, and 
I don't know of anyone who has a great answer as to how it's going to play out. I think the right answer is probably going to land somewhere in that hybrid model where we do spend a lot more time than we think outside of the office or at home. We do spend part of our week, part of our time at an office or a shared workspace. But what we do in those spaces might be a lot different. It might be reserved for collaborative meetings or, or you know, team get-togethers, uh, project-oriented tasks, rather than coming to a position, you know, a desk at work that we had that was dedicated to us and sitting for a large part of our day and, and doing work, uh, you know, and then doing other things while we're at work. But I, I, I would love to know the future in that because there's a lot of money that's going to be made in, in the office market if someone can figure it out. But if we do go to, even if we do go to a hybrid model, that's huge implications for the amount of office space that we have in the country. It's going to, just like retail, it's going to have to change. It's going to have to be evolved into maybe apartments or hotels or other uses because we just probably have too much of it. Well, for companies that are highly invested in this space, thinking obviously particularly of commercial real estate, often they're leveraged. Um, I'm not one of them. And I don't envy the position that they're in having to make hard decisions. But since our audience is really individual investors, that's for the most part who listens to Rule Breaker Investing and follows Million Acres every week, I think the good news is we don't have to know the answer right now because usually big trends, and this is one of them, play out over time. There will be innovators who come in and do crazy stuff we wouldn't have thought of, just like there are crowdfunding platforms for commercial real estate today that you and I as individual investors can invest in, and no one was thinking about that 20 years ago. So I'm very confident that innovators will come in, and there will be some really cool new things that show up. And you and I can figure those out a year or three from now. And if they're real trends, Matt Argersinger and every rule breaker listening to me right now, if they're real trends, they'll keep playing out for years after that. So you don't have to be first. You don't have to put a ton of money in here or make a big bet either way. It's not binary. It's much more likely that it'll be both and. Uh, in the same way, classically, we use more paper today, even though the internet showed up and at one point said it, you know, we thought electronic would replace paper. I suspect there'll be both and it'll all grow out, but we can watch it happen and invest as we go. I'm curious for your investing advice through Million Acres, Matt. Do you have any examples where you have kind of started to see something new or taken a risk on somebody's new unproven view of the future of work? So this is gonna be this is gonna sound funny to a lot of your listeners, I think, but what is old might be new again. And when I, and it's not even that old, but you know, WeWork was gonna come public a few years ago with a lot of fanfare, <laughs> huge valuation, right? And of course, we know that that kind of collapsed and there was just, it, it never came to fruition. But it did recently go public again yep. uh, via a SPAC just, just maybe a week or two ago. WeWork actually might have the model <laughs> of the future, but they were just maybe way ahead of their time, which is, it could be a situation where the the, the future office really is a, a co-working or office sharing type of platform. And maybe WeWork isn't necessarily the answer of the right company to bet on, but that could eventually be one of the models that sort of wins the day, I guess, in, in the traditional office market. And wouldn't that be kind of ironic in a way that the much derided WeWork of several years ago is actually 
the future. They were just kind of ahead of their time. <laughs> well, and we've seen that happen before. I think about Web Van 25 years ago or so. Oh my gosh, yes. Late 90s, brilliant business model that just didn't work. It was too early for the world, but you know, grocery delivery that didn't even sit in the giant for a while. It came straight from kind of the farmers to a warehouse straight to you. Webvan invested a ton of money, had a talented CEO attracted from big business and caved in badly in the late 1990s. And so I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you're right here, Matt, that, that that is a smart idea. That is a model. And certainly, you know, WeWork is not the only player here. I think in every American city, there's some entrepreneur who probably has his or her local brand for that kind of shared office space within that neighborhood of that city. I think, well, I'm not going to say it's ubiquitous, but it feels like it's a real thing out there. So I, I hear you on that point. Any other predictions you want to make about the future of work or real estate investing prior to us moving on to what I'm dreading, which is section three of this interview? <laughs> no, I will just say that you know what our I think what our conversation shows is that even in real estate, which a lot of us kind of think of as that a slow moving, you know, stagnant industry, the changes can be pretty monumental. Yeah. Uh, especially when you go through a global p- pandemic that really changes the game. Uh, and so uh, even in real estate, we're seeing some huge changes and they're just starting to play out and they've got years to go. And it is, as you said earlier, the world's biggest asset class. So there's just huge dollars or whatever currency you want to talk about invested in all of this because it's the earth around us, which I hope we're treating well as well. That's a separate conversation for another day. But thank you, Matt, for that tour through three undeniable long-term trends and, of course, one major uncertainty for real estate ahead. Let's move on to section number three. It's time for you to quiz me on 10 real estate multi-baggers. I hope I know at least one. Matt, you've been on the show before. You helped initiate the Market Cap Game Show. You were my guest star the first several occasionally I would make you look bad, not by intention, but just because I'd ask you about a stock you didn't know and you'd massively misguess high or low the market cap or Etsy. But that's another thing. So so now the tables are about to turn because this is something you know really well that I don't and it's quiz time. And I'm here on behalf of all of our listeners. So I'm a proxy for people who probably know a lot more than I do about this. But if you like to see slow motion train wrecks, let's get ready and strap in. What do you got for me? I love this. Well, I love this. It's my chance to stump you finally. And I think if anyone's <laughs> listening, if you get more than, what do we do? If we get more than David in this case, you can go to Twitter with the hashtag, I beat David. Love we'll, it. Absolutely. <laughs> all right. One, one week only, but how could it not be? Thank you, Matt. Yeah. All right. So I, I've got 10 tickers. I'm going to give you the ticker and you're going to see if you can guess the name of the real estate company. And these are all companies that have been around for at least 10 years and they've put up monster returns over the last 10 years. Uh, So here we go with ticker number one. I think you're going to get this one. The ticker is AMT. AMT. Thank you. I am going to get this one. So you're leading me off with the softball, which I appreciate. And I hope the softballs keep coming from the pitching machine. (laughs) But that's that's American Tower. And that is that, that's a company that's been a longtime rule breaker. It's been a significant winner. I haven't checked it recently, but I think it's been it's outpaced the market over 10 plus years. And you know, a company that really got rich off of dropping down cell towers all around the US and the world during the age of mobile. So uh, and it's also a company that converted Matt into a REIT. It started out as just, I guess, a real estate stock, is how I think 
when we first picked it for rule breakers a long time ago, but it converted into a real estate investment trust. You could talk a little bit more about that if you want, especially if you're going to be asking me about any other REITs. It would be good to define our terms, just explain that for some of our listeners new to real estate investing. Uh, And by the way, if there are more REITs coming, that's going to be the only one I get. (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah, American Tower. I mean, it's you got it right. I mean, it's a longtime rule breaker, great performer. It's up almost 500% over the last 10 years. Uh, so almost a 20% annualized return out of American Tower. It is a real estate investment trust. Uh, and real estate investment trusts have been around since the 60s, actually. But it's a way for a, a, real, a company that owns predominantly real estate to uh, convert into a this structure that enables them to avoid federal taxes if they pay out 90% of their pre-tax income out to shareholders. And so that's why your typical REIT is going to have a pretty high dividend yield. Um, Interestingly, I don't know if if you know this or if a lot of your listeners do, but American Tower is actually the largest REIT in the world. Uh, so uh, it just uh, by the, the nature of its business being, you know, in the, the, the cell, cell power business, which we know has been just, uh, you know, a huge uh, talk about undeniable trends over the last you know decade plus twenty years now actually, and um, it's also a very international read. It's it's more than fifty percent of its assets actually are outside the U.S. So it's one of those rare U.S. REITs, U.S. listed REITs that also has a lot of international exposure to it. Well, Matt, again, thank you for picking a rule breaker to lead off with, and I I didn't know just the extent of the size and success of American Tower. It is an ongoing rule breaker recommendation. I'm really happy that it's been part of rule breakers for many years, but it represents one of those companies I don't know that well, and yet it's the one I know best in this industry. What's number two? All right, number two, ticker is A-R-E. I, I don't know this for sure. I'm going to guess. I do want to mention, I am not Googling or looking at anything in terms of the quiz to come. I wanted to go in blind. The one thing I did do is I Googled, what are the 10 largest U.S. home builders? Because I thought that would remind me of some companies like Lennar. I don't know if that's one of the ones out here. So I did really light preparation, but no, I'm going in blind. However, A-R-E, I do think I know this because it's been a recommendation in other Motley Fool services, probably one of yours, Matt, but I think it's Alexandria Real Estate. And if I have that right, that's Alexandria, Virginia, where Fool HQ is based. Do I have that right? You got well. You got the company right, um, Alexandria Real Estate Equities (ARE). Um, uh-huh. It's not. It's as far as I know. Um, it's not. It, it originated from San Diego. I don't think it has anything any connection to Alexandria, Virginia. Oh, it has no. no I always assumed. Uh, surely it's got to be our Alexandria. <laughs> uh, but no, it's it, it was uh, founded a long time ago by uh, Joel Marcus as a real estate company designed to. Uh, own life sciences and biotechnology real estate. Okay, and so you can imagine they started out yes. kind of on, the, on the West Coast. They've expanded, of course. They just actually signed a, a mega new deal to build Moderna's new headquarters in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Love it. Uh, but huge winner, three hundred fifty percent return over the last ten years, about a sixteen percent annual return. Uh, a great way, you know, if you're looking to get exposure to life sciences and biotech, but want to do it through real estate, that's certainly one to look at. And now I remember why I know this one, because it's been talked about before on Motley Fool Industry Focus, one of our podcasts, and sometimes mentioned on Motley Fool Live as well. And now I remember that that it's that whole life sciences, biosciences tie-in. It's not an Alexandria, Virginia tie-in. But yeah, and that's one of the cool things about this area, Matt, is that some companies really specialize. So while you think it's just a, a, a REIT you're buying or a real estate company, it's actually a play on, in this case, life sciences. And you know, I think a lot of us have a lot of hope and belief that that's a huge area of growth. And yeah, 
who are the companies leasing the space to all of those kinds of companies, which is often specialized, right? Laboratories, they have to be built in a certain way to spec in some cases. It's much more technical. It's it's harder. So, And this may be true of some of your others to come. We've got eight more to go, so we should keep moving. But yeah, it's kind of cool how you can buy a play on blank, fill in the blank with your real estate company. Certainly is. Certainly is. Um, all right. Here is ticker number three. It is this might be a tough one. It is EGP. Uh, I'm just going to go with Eagle Properties because it looks like <laughs> it might be Eagle Properties. That's all I got for you. I, I love that guess. <laughs> it's actually East Group Properties. I know. Uh, I doubt anyone listening has probably heard of this company, but it is a tremendous performer. It is up uh, about 550% over the last 10 years. And it is really the intersection of two of the trends we talked about, which is e-commerce because they're mostly an industrial warehouse, industrial REIT. And they also are Sunbelt focused. So most are about 90% of their real estate is located in the Sunbelt region. And, and in fact, 50%, I think, is located across Texas and Florida, those two states alone. So really benefiting from those two trends. Um, and it's been a monster performer. Uh, but yeah, one that I'm sure many listeners have not heard of, East Group Properties, EGP. Thank you for that. And Matt, I certainly didn't get that one. So if anybody did, you're beating Dave. Uh, <laughs> but I would like to add that, you know, I think I assume part of what you're doing as somebody who looks at this industry and recommends these kinds of investments, Matt, is that you're as much studying the industry tied to it, in this case, e-commerce, in the previous case, life sciences. Um, you probably have a leg up if you have an ability to read the financials of those kinds of companies, or if you've worked within that industry, I assume you see with a sixth sense when you're looking at certain areas of the real estate niches, spaces you really know as a hobbyist or professional. Right. And that's it's absolutely true. And I think with a company like East Group, for example, if you understand some of the tailwinds behind their business and you look at some of the regions where they have exposure, you know, we we you can look at a lot of up and down fundamentals of a, of a particular REIT. But the nice thing is with a business like that, you can also take a very top-down approach, which is where are they? Where do they have exposure? What, what kind of tenants are they serving in the regions where they are, they're operating? Mm -hmm. And you can make a pretty good guess of whether or not uh, a REIT is going to have success uh, based really on, on just that. All right. So you're two out of three. Not, not bad. Not bad, David. going to get right. worse. All right. <laughs> All right. We'll see. So the next one is, and I'm by, basically, I'm by the way, I'm doing these tickers in alphabetical order. Ah, so thank you. Thank you. Might, I'm help or not. I don't know. But the next one is <laughs> LSI. Um, I mean, I, there was a company called LSI Logic, I thought, but I, th isn't that a semiconductor company? I have no idea. <laughs> let's, go with, let's go with Land Science Institute. <laughs> I, love, I love when you try to guess the company, Dave. This is, this is Life Storage, which is a self-storage company, one of the leading self-storage REITs. In the market, and mm. uh, gosh, if there's one real estate class that you would have wanted to invest in for decades, forever, actually, it is self storage because, for whatever reason, Americans love our stuff. And you know what's what's fascinating about self storage? So just some context, Ella. You know, life storage, uh, it's up almost six hundred percent over the, just the last ten years. It's been a monster performer. Um, we, we this self, the whole self storage industry doesn't really exist outside the United States. It's it's bizarre. Uh, you know, there's it just as an as a as investable class, you just can't find it anywhere else. But we have such a yeah. love of stuff in the United States that this whole industry has really just propped up. And um, today we have more self storage facilities than ever, uh, and they seem to be popping up. Uh, every, my my wife and I we actually invested in a new life. Uh, sorry, in a new 
self-storage development out in, in Denver, Colorado, which is seeing just a the city itself is seeing just influx a huge boom. of stuff. Of stuff. <laughs> People and stuff from moving to Denver. So we thought that was a good investment. But this was, yeah, this is one of the best, uh, in, in our opinion, one of the best operated self-storage REITs out there. And it's it's the performance definitely shines through. Cool. Undeniable long-term trend. That's right. All right. Ticker number five, MAA. Like the others, I have no idea. Unlike the others, I'm not going to make a lame guess on this one. I thought you might do like like America Airlines or some kind of like middle <laughs> America Airlines, but it's actually um, the, the company's Mid-America Apartment Communities. I know, boring, but... This is, uh, again, intersection of two really good trends, which is just Sunbelt migration. So this is, um, okay. uh, I'd say 80 to 90% of their, uh, mostly apartment buildings, um, garden-style apartment buildings located in the South and Southwest. Uh, and they are the largest, actually largest apartment owner and operator in the, in the country. And so it's a very large REIT. And it's up about 400% over the last 10 years. Been a nice, wow. uh, nice performer. And Matt, when you're giving the returns, uh, this is inclusive of dividends. Is this all in? Is that what you're doing? Yeah, that's correct. Inclusive of dividends, right? Total return. All right. So so far, two out of five. Okay. Let's see. Okay. Here I got it. Here's a softball. Here, a softball is now coming your way. Great. Here. I think I think you'll love this one. The ticker is MTN. Yes, I do. I do love this company. It's Vale Mountain Resorts. You got and it. This is a company that um, has been a longtime stock advisor recommendation. I, I made it years ago, just thinking, you know, nobody's inventing any new mountains anytime soon that's, <laughs> that's going right. to have new ski slopes. There is the opportunity to develop some slopes that were nascent, but more than anything, Matt, for Vale Mountain Resorts, which has kind of rolled up its industry in some ways. It's been very acquisitive of some of the great properties for skiers in the world today, but there's that great trend of summertime when in the past people would just leave, let's say, Vail and go summer somewhere else and come back to ski, but enough other people started going, you know, Vail's beautiful in the summer. Colorado summers are gorgeous, and so these have become warm weather destinations as well as we have kind of shifted our thinking around the value of these outdoor property. So I definitely know this one. I know it's a market beater and a, a company that I've really enjoyed following. Well, I'm, yeah, investors are, Stock Advisor members are thrilled that you made this recommendation because uh, it is up over 900% over the last 10 years. It's a 10-bagger. Uh, the Actually, the best performing of the 10 that I'm, I'm bringing today. And you're absolutely right. It's been just a great story about inc- sort of increasing and enhancing the time spent at Vail, you know, Vail Resorts around the the country, but also that you know, the acquisition. I remember as a as a kid in New England, I, I went to Stowe Mountain a couple times. Uh, you know, had some really great skiing experiences there. And then, of course, a few years ago, Vail Resorts decided to buy Stowe. They made kind of a big move out to the uh, East Coast and bought up a number of, of resorts out there. So, um, but yeah, pretty much the best in the business, Vail Resorts. And you're right, they're just not making more mountains. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. I really appreciate that. You brought me even three out of six. That's way better than I thought I would be at this point. And I'm not going to declare that I've gotten my last one right, but I might have gotten my last one right. Well, we'll see. You know, your 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 Google of the home builders may have helped Ooh, you with this next okay, one. Okay, good. Well, I, I haven't memorized them all, but there's Pulte, there's Lenar. What do you yeah. got? All right. Ticker is NVR. Mm. Yeah, it's I a little think, bit of a trick one. I'm, I'm kind of tricking you on this one. Okay. It's kind of unfair. Um, uh, Nuveen Realty. It's it's a fund. It's not even a, a real estate stock. Oh, uh, well. I'm making this up. 
No, but that's, you know, Nuveen, I believe Nuveen has some real estate funds. So you're, you're, you're not far off, but NVR. So the actual company name is NVR. They used to be known as NV Homes. They bought Ryan Homes a while later and then changed okay. the company name to NVR. I think the NV Homes stand, stood for Northern Virginia Homes back in the day because it was, uh, it's a company that was founded in Washington, D.C. And they built most of their early properties in Alexandria, Arlington, Fairfax, which of course we all know as, as you know, counties around uh, Washington, D.C. and here in Northern mm-hmm. Virginia. So NVR. It has been an amazing performer. The, over the last 10 years, it's up almost 700%, uh, about a 23% annual return. Uh, what's really fascinating about NVR is that they don't, they don't pay a dividend. They don't hold conference calls. All you get every quarter is a really brief, like one page and a half press release with their, you know, their latest financials. And they, of course, they have their, their 10Q. But they're just very, you know, just buy the book company. There's not yeah. a lot of flash. Um, I love it. Um, and they kind of they're kind of a rule breaker in their way because they kind of pioneered the whole idea of not owning the land where they build their homes. A lot, okay. you know, traditionally home builders will buy a plot of land, hold that land, and then at the right time, you know, start, start selling plots and building homes on that land. NVR is set, instead buys options, essentially leases on land that they can kind of get out of at low cost. So hmm. they kind of speculate and say, okay, we think we're going to build you know eighty homes here. But if we don't, we're going to pay the landowner, you know, kind of a breakup fee. Um, and that's kept their kind of capital costs really low over the years and let them be very efficient with their capital. So just a, a big kind of now other home builders, of course, have followed that model now, but they're kind of the early company to do that. So pretty interesting. That's great, Matt. And, you know, another winner here, it occurs to me to mention that I'm assuming your list of 10 here, kind of who's who among the winners. Obviously, not every one of these companies in this industry is a winner, but of course we're focused since we provide advice to our members on what does win and whether or not you or I have recommended any or all of these, it, it does, I think, really pay us off to focus on what's working out there and study success. So I appreciate that. I don't know if you're going to present any more losers here, eight, nine, and 10, but um, I hope neither you nor I picked them. <laughs> uh, all right. So the next ticker, ticker number eight is RHP. So RH is one of my favorite stock picks for Motley Fool Stock Budget. That's Restoration Hardware, which is its own amazing story. It's definitely just RH, though. I don't know, but I'm going to go with residential home properties. Not bad, not bad. It's actually Ryman Hospitality Properties. <laughs> so, so among a lot of uh, real estate, this, this company is mostly focused on resort-style um, properties. And they, they own the Gaylord National Resorts brand, uh, including the one that's nearby National Harbor, the Gaylord's National Resort, Gaylord National Resort there. On the Potomac River, that's right. Yep. And they own a, a bunch of entertainment venues as well, including the Grand Old Opry in Nashville, the famous kind of Western music mm-hmm. um, concert venue. Uh, and so it's really a you know a hospitality entertainment company, and they've been very, very successful. Had a tough 2020, as you can imagine, with with COVID, as, as a lot of hotels and resorts did, but really bouncing back nicely here in 2021. And uh, a really long-term winner, last 10 years, up 660% uh, uh, over that time. Wow, despite a tough 2020, that's remarkable. And I will say, this is one of those where I do recognize the company. I've certainly been to the Grand Ole Opry. Our son went to school at Vanderbilt, which is right in Nashville. It, it allowed me to get to know one of America's fastest growing best cities today. And uh, yeah, in the Ryman name, I see uh, in different places, National Harbor, as you mentioned, right on the Potomac River in Washington, D.C. So sometimes you know the company, you just don't know the ticker symbol. 
In this case, I have to admit, I didn't know either particularly well. But thank you for connecting us in with, you know, what sounds like a family name and not a big brand. But as soon as you start saying, well, all of the Gaylord um, resorts, et cetera, we, we all start to go, oh, that's the company. That's right. Yeah. I mean, the, the great thing is about real estate is any anytime you, you're, at, you're at a concert or a stadium arena or, or at a beautiful resort, there's a real estate company behind that yeah. um, that sometimes you can invest in. All right. Two more to go, David. Let's see if you can get one more of the next two. They might be tough, though. This, this one we, we talk a lot about, and it's one I've probably mentioned before on various podcasts, but the ticker is S-T-A-G. Um, unfortunately, I'm not going to get this one. I, I, it's one of those ticker symbols that looks like something you could parse. And, you know, it makes, st- it looks like stage to me. So I started thinking, you know, is this, is this a real estate play on, you know, all of those Live Nation venues that, um, some of which Live Nation, by the way, owns, but I'm assuming that's not at all what this company's about. I don't know Stag. Well, it's, the company name is Stag Industrial. So uh-huh. it's, you know, you, you can almost get it by the ticker, but um, Stag Industrial, yeah, another another one of those industrial companies that that focuses on your your warehousing and logistics. In this, unlike East Group, which we talked about earlier, this company Stag is is uh, kind of all around the country, but they focus on your sort of secondary markets. Like they have big presences in places like Cincinnati, uh, Charlotte, uh, what's another one, Philadelphia. So kind of outside major major cities, but in sort of those smaller secondary cities. Yeah. Um, they've, made, they've kind of made a nice business for themselves, really focused on acquisitions. They uh, About 95% of their um, real estate they add to the portfolio comes through acquisitions, unlike East Group, which does a lot more development. Okay. Um, but they've done a really great job of allocating capital and the stock, the total return for the stock is uh, 630% over the last 10 years. So nice winner. That's wonderful, Matt. And I, I so appreciate you bringing a mix of different companies. I know many of these are U.S.-based companies. You did mention American Tower up front it has so many global assets. Um, but even though we're probably rightly concentrating in the U.S. for this list of stocks, there are a lot of these same business models and companies in wonderful places all around the world. And not always that easy to invest in, in many cases, maybe private companies that we can't touch. But I so appreciate it. I really initially thought of this as just a quiz that makes me look silly. And indeed, that's exactly what it is. But (laughs) more to the point, you're providing some really cool ideas for people who are interested in looking further at uh, investments within this space. And you know, as we get to number 10 here, it occurs to me, a lot of these will probably be working 10 years from now. So while it's natural to look back over the last 10 years and see how they've all done, this is a steady eddy kind of a business that's going to keep growing. And there are lots of innovations and opportunities coming within real estate writ large. So Matt, I feel like you're giving us kind of a window into the future with many of these ideas. What's number 10 so I can close out with only three right? <laughs> okay. This is, this is, this is, this is, I, I left the, this unfair one to, to last. I, I probably won't get this one, but it's, it's one we just recently recommended in our real estate winner service. Cool. Um, so it's, it's our newest recommendation there, but the ticker is S-U-I. Uh, there's that phrase sucks to be me, which is kind of how I feel right now. So it kind of sucks, sucks to you. I, I don't know. S U I S U I. Well, yeah. Switzerland the, is it's, 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 you a know, Swiss, I, it's a Swiss read. That's right. What Swiss. is this? It's the Swiss acronym. Whenever you're watching the Olympics, you see S U I the red, you know, and you're thinking Switzerland, but no, the ticker gives no clue as to the name, but it's sun communities. And they are the largest owner of RV parks and mobile home parks mm. in the country. Uh, they also have a big marina business, uh, boat slips and such. So uh, 
but really a fantastic winner, se- up 700% over the last 10 years. And when you think about affordable housing uh, in the United States, which there seems to be less and less of it, um, this company has kind of seen a lot of demand because they offer something that is pretty affordable, more affordable to, to more people, which is you know cheaper homes on you know where you don't necessarily have to buy the land. You can own your home, but you know you lease the land or the the platform underneath your mobile home or RV to uh, Sun for you know a modest uh, rental fee per month. Um, and so it's a very affordable place for a lot of people to live. But uh, great management team. You kind of have the the son of the founder who still runs the business. He's been running it for gosh almost thirty years at this point. So uh, and a fantastic winner for investors. Well, that's a cool one to to mention. And it reminds me of my bad stock pick for Rule Breakers four years ago. In fact, it was November, so four years ago this month. Camping World, which has really been up and down. But you know, as a uh-huh. seller of RVs and certainly a, a brand name, a lot of people would recognize. I had higher hopes for these last four years. I will mention that I recommended the stock at $35.61 four years ago this month. Today, it's 38 or so. It's up about 7%. The problem is the market over the last four years is up 91%. So it's been a huge underperformer. So Matt, this is a great one to close on because you're showing, while I might have had some kind of a good idea that RVs would be growing, and I couldn't have known about COVID back in 2017, but we still could have made money here. Sometimes it's the land not the hardware or even sometimes software sitting on top of the land, but the land itself can have a lot of value. That's right. A lot of ways to make money in this world. If you, if you have an idea, and sometimes real estate is, is the way to go. Well, Matt, you took us from the democratization of this asset class for all of us as individual investors. You took us through undeniable long-term trends and a big question. And you just took us through 10 real estate multi-baggers, including some new ideas for our listeners. That was very generous. I so enjoyed spending this time with you. Do you have any concluding thought? Yes, Dave. Well, I thank you so much for having me. And I, by the way, three out of 10, that's, that's not I mean, bad. I mean, yeah, I threw so, some heat. I threw some heat. I appreciate that. So four or better, the hashtag is I beat David. This week only on Twitter, we're going to shut down that hashtag after a week goes by. <laughs> but no, I, I was I, I outperformed my own expectations. So you left me feeling good, even though I only got three. Hey, 300 hitter that in baseball, that's that's Hall of Fame. That's Hall of Fame. True so, that. Anyway, um, no, I, I, I appreciate you bringing me on. I think, uh, you know, real estate might be a curious topic for a, a rule breaker investing podcast. But I, I, I think as we talked about, whether it's investors sort of being able to access the the asset class like never before, or some of the big trends uh, that are really changing the game. I think there's a lot of actual rule breaker themes within the real estate space, and I'm excited to you know see if investors uh, have opportunities there. And I, I know they do. Thank you, Matt. You sure do, and and you're living proof with your outstanding returns in the launch of Million Acres a few years ago, which we're just delighted by at the Motley Fool. And I do want to say that yeah, rules are being broken all the time, and if you even just think about how we've all shifted culturally from office space to home office space or from malls to e-commerce. Yeah, those were conventional wisdoms. Those were big structures. Those were Goliaths. Those were assumptions that we all had in place over the last few decades that have all been subverted or changed. And so rules are always being broken. And having an eye toward where the real money is in this, the world's biggest asset class, well, you've given us a window into that this week, Matt. So thank you so much. And I do want to encourage as we close here, anybody who has a question, did Matt stir your curiosity? Do you have questions about crowdfunding platforms or how to get started or any aspect of this? Well, here's the good news. At the end of every month for this podcast, of course, we do a mailbag. Our email address is rbi at fool.com. And I've already had Matt 
pre-graciously accept my invitation to join me at the end of this month for this month's mailbag. So we would love your best questions or thoughts, your life in real estate or the prospects for this asset class going forward. Any insights, stories, poems, we accept all of it. RBI at fool.com. Matt, I'm going to say, Matt, see you around Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you, David. Happy Thanksgiving to you. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.